Welcome, everyone. This is the Wharton Undergraduate Healthcare Podcast. This podcast is aimed at fostering discussion of healthcare topic, connecting students to the world of healthcare industry. Today, we have Dr. Nembard, who is an Associate Professor of Healthcare Management at the Wharton School of Business of the University of Pennsylvania. Her research focuses on how characteristics of healthcare organizations, their leader, and staff contribute to their ability to implement new practices, engage in continuous organizational learning, and ultimately improve the quality of care. Dr. Nimbar received her PhD in Health Policy and Management with a concentration in Organizational Behavior from Harvard University. This discussion is moderated by the Conversations Committee surrounding the topic of healthcare organizations in clinical settings. So Dr. Nambar, thank you so much for being here with us today. Would you like to just tell us a little bit about the main focus of your research? I would say that my research tends to fall in about three groups, largely. I have been, since I think the time I was maybe an undergrad, I've been really interested in the work environment. So I was actually Actually, I should back up a little bit. I was an ethics, politics, and economics major and a psychology major in undergrad. And I, when I was trying to decide what I was going to do after I graduated, I didn't actually have any idea what I was going to do. Um, but I had the good fortune of being exposed to healthcare. I started working for a health insurer. And when I was working for a health insurer, there were so many issues that came up. And I think that's driven sort of my research agenda for the last however many years I've been doing this now. So one thing that's been of real interest to me is the work environment for healthcare workers. And largely, I think this comes out of the idea that in order for patients to receive the quality of care that they should and that we know is possible for them, we really have to have an environment in which workers feel like they can deliver on that. And so That is things from teamwork to thinking about organizational culture, to thinking about leadership, to thinking about the ability to speak up and say, you know, you made a mistake there or I made a mistake there. Those kinds of things have a large impact. Research is pretty convincing that they have a large impact on the quality of care that patients receive. And so I've been fundamentally interested in thinking about how do you make the work environment a great place for anybody who works in healthcare. And I think I've been studying that for years now, but COVID has made that all the more important because we see now the great resignation has happened in healthcare. Healthcare workers are stressed. What makes it possible for them to be able to come to work now is being in a good environment, one that's supportive of them, but one that also has the resources to let them do the job they need to do. So some of my research is focused on that. The second area of my research is focused on sort of the topic I just finished teaching MBAs about, which is organizational learning. When I was a doctoral student, I was really struck by the statistic that a healthcare professional would have to read 19 articles a day in their specialty to keep up, which is just like ridiculous. There's no way that's going to happen. Uh, You know, like we're lucky if we each get through the articles we're supposed to read for class or that I'm supposed to read as a professor to teach class or that I'm supposed to read to write a paper. And so, but at the same time, we need healthcare workers. We need healthcare organizations to be able to bring in that new knowledge if they're gonna be better, if they're gonna be innovative, if they're gonna do all the things they can do. I've had a segment of my research agenda really focused on like, how do you help healthcare organizations learn? Learn better, learn faster, be more effective at learning. My third area I would say is that I have been really focused on how do you improve the patient experience, which is a separate issue from quality of care. How do you make it so that when you end up in the hospital or you need to interact with a healthcare provider or you need to interact with the healthcare system in some way, 
the experience actually feels like a good experience that you get care in a timely way, your care is coordinated, you can feel like you can have a good and productive conversation with your healthcare provider, the communication is great. And I've been interested in those subjects as well and done research and experiments in those areas. And then I have just a smattering of projects that are on things like social networks and creativity in healthcare and innovation. And I'm working with um, actually a Wharton undergrad who serves as my RA and we've been working on a project on empathy in healthcare and just a number of things that come up. So I tend to be interested in a lot of things, but I would say those are sort of the large areas that I focus on. Very interesting. So I guess my next question is um, more specifically, what changes do you see uh, potentially in the near future that can be done to the clinical setting to improve both quality of care and the patient experience while also simultaneously decreasing cost? Because that's always a pressing factor. Oh, that's like the big question for the whole entire industry. Um, so I'm impressed you think I have the answer. You need to have healthcare be a place where workers feel, I mean, a lot of my research is, or a segment of my research is on psychological safety and the idea that someone feels safe to speak up with questions, suggestions, um, point out mistakes, offer ideas. I think we need to get to a place where workers feel like they can voice things that are going wrong, as well as their ideas for how to fix them. And so it's not, and I would say it's not just workers, but I think patients as well. So one of the projects we're working on really has looked at patients' creative ideas for improving the healthcare system. I mean, it seems perhaps somewhat radical because we don't think of patients as having ideas that might sort of, that's not a, that has not been an area of focus. We tend to think about let's survey healthcare providers and we should, we absolutely should. They have many wonderful creative ideas. And some of our work has really shown that the most dissatisfied healthcare professionals are the ones that have the most creative ideas for improving healthcare. So I think one is we have to figure out what those ideas are and we should look to providers and to patients and to leaders. That's figuring out the what. Um, we need to do that. We need to figure out how to take the ideas that we know work or even our creative ideas and be much better about how we implement them. And so part of that is being systematic in the way that we structure our implementation efforts. We have seen consistently in healthcare that there are many wonderful innovations, but they don't deliver the results we expect because they're not implemented well. And so if we wanna change healthcare, we've got to be much more serious and systematic in the way that we implement our innovations. I think that's important. And then I think to sort of pick one thing from each of my research areas, I would then say that we need to be much more attuned to what it is that the experience that we wanna deliver. So let's figure out what those five things are that would make for a better patient care experience, that would make for a better workforce experience. So is it that we need to have more coordinated care because at the end of the day, that is really what's going to make a difference. I mean, I think if you look at healthcare reform and you look at the ACA, the Accountable Care Act, a lot of the attention is focused on sort of the economic side of it. There's a lot of attention to thinking about who's going to do the cost sharing. Are there going to be exchanges? Do we need universal care? That's a lot of the conversation thinking about how we're going to get high value care. How are we going to reduce the cost? All of those are really important. I think making those changes means we have to be a lot more attentive to the managerial and organizational side of care. Like which organizations are going to partner with each other? Which ones are going to be in the same social networks? That's going to determine whether or not we're able to get better coordinated care. If we can get better coordinated care, 
then care will be less frustrating for providers and for patients. And by the way, it should also be less costly because we're no longer having to deal with some of the waste that's built into the system because of that in, in that coordination failures. So I'm a big sort of proponent of thinking about how do we how do we sort of make coordination and teamwork happen better in healthcare. And I think that's we've missed an opportunity so far to think about how do we take some of those managerial principles that you all learned about teamwork, um, about building a culture that is supportive, all of those things that you learn in your healthcare program and healthcare and your sort of general management, that we don't see that much management in healthcare. I mean, that that's sort of the reality. We don't see that much management in healthcare, like really trying to improve the business and organizational side of care. I'm biased in thinking that that would make a huge difference. So do you think the push for practices to see more patients in tandem with the increased paperwork requirement leading to less time spent with the patient is a problem? And if so, how should it be addressed? I think healthcare is trying to figure out how to do how to deal with that. And we're seeing new organizational forms handle that. So we're seeing the rise of physician practice management companies. We're seeing the consolidation of practices which basically takes the administrative side and gives it to somebody else <laughs> to manage so that it's not being managed within the practice. The providers focus on delivering care and there's another entity that's handling the business side of it. You know, there are pros and cons to that. There are some models. Um, one of the doctoral students in this, formerly in this department now, a professor at Columbia, Ambar Lafobia, she in her dissertation found that that can be beneficial for providers and they can like it we can see differences in the quality of care based on sort of how that administrative structure thinks about the incentives as well. So it's not a clear solution. You have to think about how they organize it, but how would you deal with that time element? Part of my research looks at patient narratives. And so we've collected about 3000 patient narratives now from New York Presbyterian in a project that I'm working on. And in those narratives, what we are seeing is that patients are very clear about what they want. Some of them would really like time with their providers. The difference in whether or not they feel like it was a good experience though is what happens in that time that they get with their providers. It's unclear that there's actually going to be more time with providers. I don't think I've heard anybody talking about, you know what we need to do is have 15 minutes with our providers. I have not seen any anybody or any initiative trying to push that forward, which leads me to believe that that's not the first thing that's going to happen on the docket. But what we might see happen before that is giving providers better strategies for managing that time, for being, for opening the conversation in a way that allows sort of the necessary communication to happen during those short encounters. We might also be seeing, it's unclear at this point, but the very fact that we now have telehealth and telemedicine has maybe opened up the possibility that there could be more time, that there might be a way in which the fact that we could be in a virtual environment where maybe you would submit your questions in the chat while you're waiting online for your provider to come online, which is kind of what has happened to my mother is like, oh, I'm just kind of sitting there in the waiting room, the online waiting room. Well, you could potentially type in your questions in chat. There might be ways in which we could leverage telehealth to allow the clinician to be a little bit more prepared for that encounter and to deal with those issues a little bit more appropriately. We might also think a little bit about how we staff. What we want to do is be able to leverage healthcare providers in the ways that they're needed. So to the extent that we can think about a healthcare team, then it might well be that if patients were able to have the conversations that they want 
with members of the team. So it's not one person, but over the course of really it's 30 minutes, by the time you put the various members of the team together, having conversations, maybe that could be satisfying. Maybe that is a way in which to make it happen, but I don't think we yet know. I, I definitely don't think we yet know the answers to this question. Do you think that a team-centric approach to healthcare could potentially be confusing to the patient though, mm-hmm. that they're going to be receiving information from multiple sources as opposed to just one provider? There's a difference between having a team and actually being a functioning team. And I think that's what you're raising. People who are assigned to a team, that's very different from us functioning as a team, right? And so if we were functioning as a team, then we would hope that those errors wouldn't happen, that there wouldn't be miscommunication, that there would be clarity about sort of what the goals of care are. There'd be clarity and understanding what that patient needs. That's asking us to change the way we work, right? That, that's really asking us to change the way we work, but it is a necessity. And so I think, you know, in some sense, it can be quite powerful. There, there's, a, there's a study that I love by a researcher, colleague, and friend at Stanford, Melissa Valentine, where she looks at how care can be transformed in emergency room departments. And typically when so she, there's a lovely intervention where originally when people arrive in an emergency department, they're kind of just randomly assigned and whoever gets you gets you. And there's a sort of a mishmash of who is the nurse and who is the physician and who's the medical assistant treating any particular patient. And it changes from one patient to the next different people are on the team versus the institution that she studied. They changed, they changed to a pod model. And essentially there was the A team, the blue team, the green team, you know, whatever for that day, for that shift, they were on a designated team. And when that happened, they saw dramatic increases in the efficiency of those teams. Those teams actually really working well together. Wait times went down for patients in that situation. And there was no harm in clinical care and quality outcomes for those patients. It's called a team scaffold. And essentially, people who may not even work together again for another six months. But in that day, they actually functioned really well as a team. And it was a matter of bounding them together as a team and sort of saying, okay, now we work as a team. And we're going to function as a team. We're going to figure out how to share communication as a team together for today. And doing that can actually make a difference. And so, you know, there, your point is well taken that there's a difference between sort of you're on a team versus you're actually teaming. We want to see people actually teaming. And that will take a little bit, you know, when we talk about team lead teams, we talk about, well, we need a team leader to say, this is how we're going to work together. You know, setting some of those guidelines can be critically important for sort of setting the rhythm and the flow and how we share information. I think teamwork can make a difference. So that pod dynamic or structure to the ER that you described, do you think it's realistic that that kind of approach to organization can have widespread implementation? I think it can. I mean, I've seen it. I've seen it in that situation in the ED where they sort of created this role structure and it worked. I've seen it in community health centers, which you'd say is sort of the maybe an opposite end, right? We think of community health centers as lower resourced environments, typically serving a vulnerable population. And I have seen the pod work there as well. And so I, I think it, it, it has potential for legs because essentially what you want is people working together and working together well, using the same language, having sort of a shared understanding of their patients and their client base, understanding what we call sort of what we call an academic literature transactive memory system. So I know that Alex is really good at sort of having this kind of conversation and Julia is really good at this kind of conversation. And together we've, we actually work well as a team because we know what each other's skill set are. We know how we talk. I know when Alex says this, she means this. I, Aiden says this, it means that. 
you can build that. You can build that over time. You can build it actually pretty quickly, but you can especially build it over time. So when we move out of the environment of sort of the fast paced emergency department where you think, oh, that definitely can't work to a setting where it's primary care or specialty care where people are actually going to the same office every day and they're getting care from the same providers every day, it should be possible to create this kind of team structure in that environment too. The idea of hierarchy in healthcare is not going to go away. And it shouldn't. There is virtue in hierarchy. If we study hierarchy, what we know is that hierarchy can provide structure. It can help us in moments where um, we need urgent decisions to be made. It can help us when there is ambiguity. It helps us figure out our role. And so all of those are really functional. So we're not expecting hierarchy to go away, but that doesn't mean that we can't act as a team in the same way. What we need, I would say, one of the things that we might benefit from is having you want to have the teamwork alongside the hierarchy. So what that means is that if I understand that I'm a member of the team and that my expertise and my contributions and my observations are important, what I want is a team where I can speak up about them and that the person who is at the top of the team will hear me and will listen to that and will integrate that information in the decision-making. And there are moments where you know, if it's not an urgent situation, then it can be more consensus-based and more deliberative and we can sort of hash out together. There will be moments where someone is, you know, crashing or a situation is crashing in an organization. And in that moment, you want everybody feeding you the information as quickly as they can and everything that they're thinking, every mistake that they've seen, every idea that they have, you want that to happen. And then ultimately there's a person who has to make a decision. Those two things can operate simultaneously. I don't think that they have to be in conflict. The healthcare industry has had the hierarchy, but has not had sort of, sort of the similar openness to let's have everybody on the team speak up. What we want is the merger of those two things. We want them to operate side by side. To me, that is the sort of the ideal that we're hoping for. Do you also see a role for like standardized care pathways, perhaps even driven by like outcome data in the healthcare system? There is sort of no doubt that as we've thought about the vision for healthcare going forward, you know, one of the keywords that I'm sure all of you hear is evidence-based care um, and that we want to have standardized care to the extent we have evidence to support it. So, you know, the idea that there'd be variability for no good reason is not something that we want to have continue in healthcare. And so I think there is a role for standardization and standardization has the benefit of ensuring that every patient gets the care that they're supposed to get given what we know. So that is, that is something that we would hope for, but standardization has this also sort of this beautiful element of it, that it allows you for learning. It allows for learning to take place, right? So once we've been able to standardize a practice, we have the opportunity to learn from the variation that occurs with that practice. And so organizations like Intermountain that are sort of heralded in our healthcare world, it's because they do that. They standardize and then they look for the variation. They try to learn from it. They try to understand that the variation is a key to learning something else, that maybe there's, maybe there's some customization that really is needed, or maybe there's an opportunity to standardize for those that have fallen off the path. That's what we want. We want to be able to be continuously learning, but it's hard to learn if you don't have metrics and you don't have standards you need to be able to have that baseline in order to get the learning that happens after it. So I know that there are many healthcare providers who um, will bristle at the idea that standardization might take away the autonomy and decision-making and sort of doesn't allow them to use the full expertise that is possible. 
But I think the goal in standardization is actually to have a standardize of things for which the expertise is not needed to the same regard, right? So if you know that a patient who's having a heart attack is supposed to take an aspirin, then let's do that. What a provider is likely to be more excited about is putting their expertise in their, their mind to thinking about those unusual cases that really do require their expertise. And I think that's part of the goal in having standardization is freeing you from doing some of the rote work or the standardized work or the things we've already figured out to sort of the areas where we really do need the expertise, where we do need the customization, where there is still an opportunity to learn. But it has not been an easy shift. It is definitely not an easy shift. And I think it might be um, as we have a younger generation of people who are growing up in a time where standardization is the norm, pathways are the norm, guidelines are the norm, maybe that won't seem quite, it won't seem odd, it will be accepted. There will be more of us sort of figuring out the next puzzle in healthcare. What have been some of those like major barriers to standardization of care and sort of having it be driven by like data and statistics and outcomes? The most common thing you'll hear is, but my patients are different. The other thing that I hear a lot is the NIH syndrome, which doesn't refer to the International Institutes of Health. It refers to the not invented here syndrome. So if it was invented at another place, what does that have to do with us? Those are probably the two most common things I hear when I talk to people in organizations. You know, sometimes it's true, but often it's not true. The other thing that comes up, I think, why you don't see standardization to the degree you might expect is one, I think on the provider side or the organizational side, sort of feeling like, I don't know if I buy in, uh, it wasn't invented in here. One is, I don't know if I buy into it. Two is, I don't know if I understand it. Three, I may not even know it really exists. Like, oh, there's a practice for that um, is something that happens. So there's an awareness that happens. And then some providers will worry that touting the fact that they could be moving to standardization is not something that their patients would like. So they don't want to be treated like cars. They don't want to be treated like cause. So the idea that you're going to say, oh, but I'm going to use standardized practice, the idea that that might make you seem less favorable to patients. That said, in my class, I actually asked people, would you want to be treated on a care path? And I think almost everyone's hand went up in class that they felt the benefits of being treated on a care path outweighed the potential negatives of not being on a care path. And so the idea that they might receive evidence-based care as a starting point. Now, if they fall off the path, okay, but that that would be the starting point for their care, at least, you know, having done this with students and executives and various groups for through the years on balance, when confronted with the benefits of standardization in care paths, people seem to like it. And I will say that a care path can be standardized and still allow for flexibility. So the care path that we looked at in class had a lot of standardization around sort of testing, around pre-op, around post-op. The actual surgery itself, when you looked at the care path, didn't tell you exactly what to do in the surgery. That was the place where there was opportunity for customization based on who the patient was and what the patient needed. And so we might be sort of the idea of standardization. We want to standardize the things we can allow for the customization and flexibility where we can. And so I think that sometimes it's a little bit of framing. And so the barrier is the perception of what might be taken away by having it versus what might be gained by having it. I will also say, so you need to have measurement and data systems. And organizations really vary in their capabilities in this way. 
And so if they don't have those capabilities, how do you even know, how do you sort of track the standardization? How do you put in the standardization? Where is the template? Certainly that's gotten better with electronic health records and, and sort of systems like Epic and Cerner and all of that, but there's still that issue. So in terms of standardization of care, do you think there is potential with it to sort of cut down on costs? Having like standardized pathways can sort of help cut down on those things that are maybe done more so to avoid like a malpractice lawsuit. It should, right? So what you're describing is what we call defensive medicine, and it should be a cost control tool. So to the extent that we standardize and we say, okay, here's what you do for a patient who has diabetes. You order, they need to do the foot exam, they need to do the eye exam, they need to have their HbA1c tested. Like here are the 10 things in the guideline. You don't need to be doing all this other stuff. And you don't order antibiotics for so-and-so like, you know, now part of that is educating patients too, that you don't actually want all this care. You want only the care that is relevant for your condition. So I think it can be a cost reduction tool. Now, of course, there are instances where if we standardize, it means that patients are actually going to get more care because not everybody's getting the evidence-based care. And so when we think about care, we know that there are three quality issues. There's underuse overuse and misuse. Now, to the extent that overuse is the problem, then standardization solves that problem. If underuse is the problem and we standardize them, we're actually going to add cost to the system. If misuse is the issue that we're confronting, then it's somewhat ambiguous, right? Because the correction of that could either be up or down. So it's a question of what you think is the, what, what is really the issue? Now, to the extent that we think defensive medicine and the inclination of patients to want more and more and more is the cost would lead us to sort of overuse, then we would think standardization would be a cost control strategy. And in your opinion, which one do you think is the biggest issue, underuse, overuse, or misuse? So this is an opinion not based on research, um, my own research. I would think that it depends on where you're situated because I think it depends on population. I think if you have an over, if you have a well-insured population, overuse is probably um, something that you confront. Somebody wants a bone density test, they want an MRI, they want you know the whole gamut of tests. Uh, those with insurance and those who are higher income are more likely to be demanding of those services. When we look at the large segment of the population, though, that is, I think, operating not with a lot of resources at their disposal, underuse is probably a situation in which they confront their foregoing care. They're not being offered care because it doesn't, how is it going to happen? I mean, I think as we move into a place in which we think of population health and we think about, you know, redesigning the incentive system. And although this is not the research I do because I'm much more inside the organization, um, looking at how organizations run, but to the extent that we have incentives that say, we're going to reimburse you for the health of your population, then we should see, we should end up seeing sort of appropriate use happening there because there's no incentive to overuse, to be overutilizing the system. And there's no incentive to underutilize the system because you know that down the road, that's a short-term strategy and that's a short-term strategy. You, the long-term on that kind of behavior is that a patient shows up much sicker and then you're facing larger costs. So one would think that sort of the movement to value-based care should put people in a position to address all of these. I think that was the intent.
Do you see a role for a value-based insurance design in the future, trying to like shift to that, moving towards like reducing the cost on high value care and reducing the cost on low value care? I think we've been trying things like high deductible plans. It's interesting because I think that it's a question. It's a question we actually talked about in class today briefly, which is where is, what is going to be the driver of improvement? Will it come from the supply side or will it come from the demand side? And so the supply side says we're going to ask our providers to, to sort of carry the weight of improving healthcare versus we might think the demand side is in, for example, value-based insurance design where we say, okay, patients are gonna move with their feet and that's going to cause change. In an ideal world, you have both, right? You have providers responding to information and by providers, I mean physicians, healthcare organizations responding to information and you have patients sort of demanding that same and sort of embracing standardized care, all of these different things, they complement each other. But there was an article that came out today that I showed in my class, which um, it's in the health services research journal came out today about paying patients to engage in high value care. And essentially it was a study of programs, but patients were rewarded, I think 25 to $500 for selecting. And the big punchline out of that study that was released today is that the only change really in utilization that was seen was with regards to MRIs. And so, you know, I think we're far from patients doing the kind of shopping that would exert the amount of pressure that is needed. We're, we're probably a ways from that. I think it's much more likely that we're going to need to rely on our healthcare organizations and our healthcare providers to come up with strategies to move things in that direction. Patients are not necessarily moved by $500 or $25. And, you know, it, it, it just hasn't happened yet. And we live in an employer-based system. And there's a long history that says that um, we're all comfortable with our health insurance. And we understand the, pay, the prices are going up. But we're still not really facing the full cost of things. And so, but will employers do that? Probably not right now when there's a great resignation and people are not taking jobs. They're not going to make it. They're not going to say, okay, now you're going to pay more for your health insurance. I mean, if I were an employer, that's not the strategy that I would take. I wouldn't say, oh, now you're going to really feel that the choices that you make in your health care. A lot of organizations are just trying to get workers now. We've also definitely talked a lot about the employer-based insurance and how that factors into quality, access, care, but in terms of provider consolidation, um, so like large organizations buying out smaller private practices, of which Yale New Haven Health is a great example because yes. they bought out pretty much everything in Connecticut. Yes. How do you think that will impact both quality and access to patients in particular in regards to a lower socioeconomic group? Consolidation is happening. <laughs> um, and it makes complete sense from a business side because the larger you are, the more market power you exert. It's a tough one, right? Because on one side, by becoming larger, if an organization chooses to do so, it also has the resources then to be high impact. So if we take an organization that has brought together 10 hospitals, is covering three counties, are they in a better position to improve the population of those counties? I would think so, because they now can say, okay, well, now I'm going to work with this social agency. I'm going to work with this transportation agency. I'm going to work with this one and really build a social net, a social net 
that is able to provide better care even for the most vulnerable, that should be possible. But you have to be in that mindset. If you're not in that mindset and it's purely a market move, then that's a different situation. My sense is that we're seeing, I mean, I think the hope of the ACA is to put a greater emphasis so that you make that first choice, which is let's, okay, so we've consolidated, but we're going to use our consolidation for good. We've created an ACO, whether it's typical or whether it's actually contractual or it's informal, we've done that so that we can actually provide services in a better way. I mean, I think that's the hope. You might see, I don't know what the Biden administration will do with regards to any limitations on further consolidation, who knows? But I think the administration has very clearly said that they have a concern about um, health equity and equity generally. And so to the extent that that's true, we're seeing statements from, you know, the head of CMS or of all these government agencies where they've said, okay, we're, we're building that into sort of the rollout of the continued rollout of the ACA. We're going to think about how we sort of deliver equitable care across the entire U.S. population, and we're going to put in incentives to make that happen. And so even though we're going to see that consolidation, hopefully that consolidation will be used for good. It hasn't always been. In many cases, it's been for raising prices and negotiations. But I think organizations, it's a question of whether they accept the challenge sort of willingly or eventually are forced to do so. And that's a function of sort of how much at risk is their, their pay line, right? So to the extent that we see that at-risk payments are a function of patient satisfaction, or really not patient satisfaction, but patient experience, if 25% of your reimbursement is sort of hanging on that, then you start to think about how to deliver a patient, better patient care experience for your population. So I don't know. I think we, I don't think we know the answer, but we certainly have seen a lot more consolidation. And just thinking in terms of provider consolidation, do you think it could be an effective way to maybe get the ball rolling more on that standardized care? Hmm. Well, it should, right? So to the extent that, so let's use your example of Yale. So we have Bridgeport Hospital, we have Yale New Haven, we have St. Rafe's that they purchased. To the extent that previously, before they were sort of all under the Yale Med umbrella, they had their own EMR systems, they had their own protocols, they had their own care paths. To the extent that they now might, they want their patients to stay within their system. This is true, not just of Yale, say the same Penn, Harvard, whatever. They want their patients to stay within the same system. So they should make it easier for their patients to go between their care providers. That means we make it, let's everybody be on my chart. Um, let everybody be on the same e-portal. Their patients all see it. All the providers are seeing the same system. If that's the case, then it also becomes easier. Well, okay, well, it's the same standardized template for care. No matter if you go to Bridgeport, you go to Greenwich, wherever, it's the same template that's going to be used. Maybe that makes it marketable because now the, you know, you can get your care at Bridgeport Hospital. You don't need to go to Yale New Haven. Let's, you know, save Yale New Haven for the, the tier four um, care that's needed, you can have the same standardized care without going there. You're trusting in that brand that it's carrying over. So to the extent that you do get that sort of sharing of best practices, right? So that's the other thing when you have consolidation to the extent that they say, okay, well, you know, what are you doing at Bridgeport Hospital? 
versus what are you doing at Greenwich? What are you doing at um, St. Ray's? What are, you know, what are you doing in these various other places? Why are your infection rates so low? Why are you, why, how, how did you get everybody to do hand hygiene? Once you start getting that sharing of best practices happening across organizations, you're like, oh, you know what? We should standardize that, right? So here's another opportunity where you learn from the variation. So the, in some sense, what you've done is increase the volume for learning potentially by the consolidation. You've got a lot more data points in that EMR system that you can be using your data analytics to try to understand, oh, you know what worked? It looks like if we, for cancer patients, if you use this protocol, which we were just sort of doing randomly, but look, let's try that, or let's start to run these RCTs and standardize because we have a large enough patient population base to be able to do that now. So I think there is potential in it. There's certainly negatives potentially, but there may be something to be gained by learning and having that to the extent that organizations may not want to share their best practices because they might feel like they're losing competitive advantage. Well, if we're all under the same umbrella, maybe we're not facing that constraint anymore. We can freely learn from each other. If you had like sort of free reign flexibility to sort of just redo the healthcare system, what are maybe like three major changes that you think would be like the most impactful targeting sort of like that iron triangle of like access, quality, and care costs? This will be biased. I would have every leader of every healthcare organization take some kind of course that covered culture and teamwork, because I think that we're going to need to address both of those in order to make a difference. Two, I would find a way to, I guess there are two things I would love to see happen. I would love to see more creative ideas applied in healthcare across the board. And the question is, where are we going to get those creative ideas? I think part of it will come from sort of all of you, whether you become clinicians or you become healthcare leaders and managers running organizations and taking ideas from patients. And I would love to see sort of a way to take the learnings from that, those experiments and disseminate them. I think that that would be huge for healthcare. We've been very incremental and there can be small changes. I think there are a number of small changes that could probably make a huge difference. We need to figure out what those are. And then the third thing, I would reward people for their effort and acknowledge their effort. I think we don't say thank you enough, which is maybe an unusual thing. But at the end of the day, people want to be appreciated for the work that they do. That's true no matter what industry you're in. It doesn't matter. I mean, if someone has done something kind for you, if someone has done something meaningful for you, say thank you. Uh, Appreciate that. Acknowledge that. You can do that, of course, through financial incentives. You can get people to do the things that you want them to do. But people just honestly want to feel appreciated. So can we appreciate our workers? Can we appreciate our leaders? Can we appreciate our patients? I think if we were able to do that a little bit more, it might just change the environment for the types of things that we do. And we would maybe see people differently and we might design the healthcare system differently with an idea that like we actually are trying to serve people. Thank you so much, Dr. Nimbard. We really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. Yes, thank you so much. I really appreciate all the great questions that you asked. I hope to meet you in person at some point.